What really happened to Chandra Levy? When the 24-year-old Washington, D.C. intern went missing in 2001, her disappearance became an American obsession. As the investigation dug deeper, the mystery of what happened to her focused on rumors of a secret affair with a popular, powerful congressman, Gary Condit. But was he just a red herring? Many people believe she was murdered by Ingmar Gwandike, but new evidence came up that might prove this wrong. How this case unfolded is full of twists and turns that make for one unforgettable tale. 20 years later, here is the story behind the headlines. In May of 2001, Chandra was in love, and her aunt was her closest confidant. But even with her, she was cagey about her man, as she called him. Thanksgiving in the fall of 2000 was the first time she mentioned this older man she was seeing. As the months went by when pressed for details, she said he was a high-profile politician who looked like Harrison Ford and lavished her with gifts and attention. Godiva chocolates, jewelry, weekends at his condo. She talked about marrying him and having his children. Unfortunately, he was already married with two kids older than she was. Now, because of his family man persona, she told her aunt, and her aunt later told her parents, that he was paranoid about their relationship. They spent most of their time at his condo, and if someone else got on the elevator with them, she had to get off on another floor. And on the rare occasions when they went out, they left the building separately, and he told her not to carry her ID. Now, one day after he filed a missing persons report, her father told D.C. police that the man she was seeing was Gary Condit, a married six-term congressman from California. Her alleged paramour was a 53-year-old smart, savvy politician who also served as a senior member on a House Intelligence Committee. Ironically, he was one of the loudest critics about President Clinton's efforts to hide his relationship with his intern, Monica Lewinsky, in 1998. Now, what what is that that they say about glass houses? Gary met Chandra only two years after that impeachment scandal. She was one of his constituents from Modesto, California, fresh to D.C. and working as an intern in the public affairs office of the Federal Bureau of Prisons with an eye towards joining the FBI in the future. So how did this ambitious 20-something meet an up-and-coming congressman? Well, they didn't just happen to cross paths in a bar. It was much more planned than that. When they had time off, Chandra and a friend liked to go on what they called political field trips, according to the Modesto Beat. Basically, they visited various representatives' offices and got their picture taken with them. And in October of 2001, the target of that day's field trip was Gary Condit. He was more than happy to play tour guide for them. According to the Washington Times, he took them into the House gallery to watch a vote, then posed for a photo with his arms around the girls. Later, he actually hired her friend to work in his office. And some rumors speculate that that was a good cover for Chandra to come and visit. And that picture that the three of them had taken originally that first day, well, the police found that picture in her apartment later. She'd framed it. Gary was born the son of a Baptist minister and often said, I need to pray on it if he couldn't answer a tough question off the top of his head. But 
Uh, he was no altar boy. A former longtime aide with murky ties to the Hells Angels taught the congressman to ride a Harley, which quickly became part of his bad boy persona. And he was even featured in the Easy Riders motorcycle magazine. According to Slate, he was Mr. June in the hunks of the house calendar, and his nickname was Mr. Blowdry. Years before his relationship with Chandra became public knowledge, he was known as an enthusiastic flirt and the kind of man who went to great lengths to keep his private life quiet, according to the Chicago Tribune. Now, Chandra's internship in D.C. was part of her master's degree in public administration at the University of Southern California. It was only supposed to last six months. Graduation ceremonies were on May 11th, 2001, but she stayed in the Capitol right up until May 1st. She emailed her mother some flight options that morning, but contrary to what you might have heard, she did not have a ticket home, which is something her parents thought was strange considering that she was due back in less than two weeks. So when five days went by and they didn't hear from her, they reported her missing on May 6th. The last time anyone saw her was April 30th, when she stopped off at her gym to cancel her membership. The day before that was the last time Gary spoke to her. His wife was in town that week on a rare visit for a congressional luncheon, and according to Slate, the only contact he had with Chandra during that time was over the phone. That same day, she left her aunt a message saying she had big news to tell her. So what she might have been about to say is a mystery. She never heard from her again. And there's one other strange piece of this puzzle. In the early morning hours of May 1st, around 4.30 a.m., a 911 call came in from a neighbor in Chandra's building. They reported hearing a woman scream, but they couldn't tell what apartment it came from. When they searched her place on May 10th, they found her suitcases partly packed and her cell phone and laptop on the table. Her house keys were gone, but her ID and credit cards were left behind with her purse. Everything else looked normal, no signs of struggle. So they figured she'd gone out, but where? Her building had security cameras, but by that time, the footage they needed to see where she'd gone or if anyone connected to this case had come in, that footage had been taped over. Her computer had answers, but when they tried to access her search history, they accidentally erased it. It took a month to recover it from the hard drive, but in early June, they finally cracked it. The last activity on the machine was on May 1st at 12.25 p.m., Her internet history revealed searches for Gary Condit, the congressional schedule, various newspapers, Baskin and Robbins, Amtrak, Southwest Airlines, and a region in France. The French thing was the last thing she looked up, but they focused their search on another site that she had visited that morning, someplace a little closer to home, the Klingle Mansion in Rock Creek Park. It's used as an administrative headquarters, and it's not open to the public. It sits on the western side of the 1,754-acre park, which is more than double the size of Central Park in New York and twice as rugged. But the search there didn't go quite as planned. There are more than 32 miles of hiking trails and paths in Rock Creek. They were meant to cover all the roads and trails around the Klingle Mansion, plus 100 yards in either direction. But there was a misunderstanding somewhere down the line, and they only searched the roads and not the trails. 
Meanwhile, her phone records revealed even more about her life in D.C., and since it was in her parents' name and they were paying the bills, they were able to get the call history right away. And according to her mother, right there in black and white, was proof that Chandra made 20 calls to Gary's private office line in the days before she went missing, and he called her too. In fact, he'd left a few messages for her in the week before she was reported missing. 2020 released those tapes, and here's what he had to say. First message, it's 1145. I'm sorry I've been tied up for the last few days, but you already know that. Next one, give me a rundown on kind of what your schedule is. Things are looking pretty good for me today anyway. Bye. And the last one, maybe you're out of the country or something. Anyway, give me a call if you get this message. Bye. The police found those on her machine. They also found his DNA on her underwear in her apartment. Publicly, he's always said they were just friends. And on the afternoon she was reported missing, he had an airtight alibi. He was in a meeting with Vice President Cheney. But according to the Washington Post, he never rose to the level of an official suspect, although the police did talk to him at least four times in the summer of 2001 and searched his apartment. But the revelation about an alleged affair with a missing intern sent the media into a frenzy. But while they were digging up dirt on the congressman, the police were running down another lead, one with a strange connection back to Gary and Chandra. On May 1st, around 2 p.m., the same day and roughly around the same time that Chandra was presumed to be in Rock Creek Park, another woman was there running for her life. She'd been walking alone along the Western Ridge Trail, nearish the Klingle Mansion, when out of nowhere, she noticed a man in the woods walking in the same direction. That was kind of creepy, so she slowed down to let him get up ahead, but some instinct told her to change direction, so she veered off the path and started climbing up a steep hill, heading deeper into the woods. Not a minute went by when she heard something. The same creepy guy was behind her and coming in fast. So she took off running and she didn't stop until she got to a main road and he was gone. That man was Ingmar Guandique. He was a 29-year-old undocumented immigrant from El Salvador with ties to the brutal M13 gang. And that area of the park was his hunting grounds. Two weeks later, another woman was running that same Western Ridge Trail around 6.30 at night. She was wearing headphones, listening to music, but she remembered passing a guy sitting near the trailhead. She was maybe a mile or two in when something told her to turn around. She was in a very isolated spot northwest of the Klingle Mansion, and jogging behind her was the same guy she'd spotted when she came in, but it looked more like he was chasing her versus getting some cardio. So she kept going, but now she's like checking behind her the whole way. But she lost some speed going up a steep hill and she didn't think he was so close, but he'd been running splits, meaning when her back was turned, he was like sprinting. And when she turned to look at him, he would slow down. So, you know, she wouldn't get alarmed. He used her slower speed as she was going up the hill to close the distance and he tackled her from behind with a knife to her throat. But she remembered her self-defense training and she jammed her fingers like up into his mouth. He bit her, but it shook him up enough that he ran away. And then on July 1st, around 7 p.m., 
It happened again, same place, same MO, and again, thank God, the third victim also managed to get away. She flagged down the park police on a main road, and 45 minutes later, police arrested Ingmar as he was walking through the parking lot covered with dirt and leaves and looking super suspicious. That same night, his latest victim ID'd him out of a lineup. In his arrest affidavit, she described him as a bold and practiced attacker. He waited until he thought I was fatigued from jogging up a hill and purposefully selected a secluded spot right next to a deep ravine. Three weeks later, while he was being interviewed about another, like, unrelated burglary he'd been charged with, he admitted, yeah, okay, it was him chasing these women through the woods, which you know, we already knew. But he claimed he was trying to rob them, not rape and murder them. And he was very, very sorry, which everyone agreed was just like stupid because how many women are jogging in a park with their purses? There's nothing to take. He didn't even try to grab the headphones or anything else that might've been valuable. And at the beginning of February, 2002, he was sentenced to 10 years for those park attacks. Well, What about Chandra, right? Like, why weren't they shaking him down about her disappearance? Well, buckle up, because this story is about to get very, like, twisty-turny. After his arrest, while he was waiting to be sentenced, a jailhouse informant said he confessed to killing Chandra. According to the Washington Post, Ingmar told this prisoner a wild story. He claimed Gary Condit paid him $25,000 to do it because, I mean, come on, he'd obviously seen the mass amounts of media coverage about her disappearance and relationship with the congressman. So, you know, that's where he's pulling that name. His story was that Gary saw him walking one day and asked him if he'd kill her, as one does. And he said he gave him her picture and a location where he could find her. Then Ingmar laid in wait for her near the Western Ridge Trail, and when she passed him, he stabbed her to death and buried her body in the woods. The money he said he sent back to his family in El Salvador. Well, I mean, come on. They thought the murder for hire bit was nuts, but they gave the informant a polygraph anyway to find out if any part of it was true. And according to the Washington Post, the person was lying. But then when they gave Ingmar a polygraph and asked him if he'd done something to Chandra, the results were inconclusive. I mean, he said no, but the results, you know, were inconclusive. Now, later, the person who gave him the test called it good. He was telling the truth when he said he didn't do anything to her. So they dropped him as a person of interest. The only problem with those polygraphs is that they were administered by an English speaker. And Ingmar and the informant spoke very little English. A translator was there to assist, but experts say that that kind of language barrier can skew the results. And the fact that the the administrator of the test said, you know, the results were inconclusive, but then afterwards, no, he was telling the truth that he was innocent. Well, that is more of a judgment call on the behalf of the, of the administrator versus like any kind of real, you know, technology. And then there's the timing of all of this, because on September 11th, 2001, you know what I'm going to say, New York and D.C. were targets of a massive terrorist attack, and the waves of fear that came after were taking most of law enforcement's attention and resources. It worked out pretty well for Gary Condit, too, because before the Trade Center's fell and the Pentagon was attacked and the whole world you know, went crazy, he was the center of conversation. It's, you know, not, not, not a place he wanted to be. 
The police and media were tearing his life apart, looking for anything they could use. And they found a few things. There was another alleged affair going on before and after the time he was supposedly seeing Chandra. This one was with a 39-year-old flight attendant. And when the feds came calling on her, she claimed Gary asked her to sign a declaration denying their relationship, like as in, I never had sex with that man. And He told her that she didn't need to talk to them about anything, according to Slate. So he told Connie Chung in August of 2001 that it was just a misunderstanding. It was paperwork between lawyers. He also denied telling Chandra to leave her ID at home, said he never said it. And he was evasive about the nature of their relationship. He's only saying they were close friends who spoke several times a week. Um, Okay. But he could only control the narrative so far. The flight attendant's statement triggered a federal investigation into obstruction of justice charges and ignited an interest in his campaign finances. In July 2001, the police tried to get him down to the station for a polygraph, but he refused. Instead, his lawyer hired a private company to give him the test privately, and he told the police he'd passed. It was all, it was all fine, according to CNN. Are we allowed to do that? Do, do you have to be a congressman? Either way, he wouldn't be getting that kind of treatment for long because as each lurid new detail was brought to light, Gary's political future got darker and darker. And in January of 2003, at the end of his term, he left Congress and dropped out of politics altogether. But before his career took a U-turn, there was a major break in the case. On May 22nd, 2002, a man walking his dog stumbled across Chandra's remains. She was near the bottom of a deep ravine about 180 feet off the Western Ridge Trail, only four miles from her apartment and less than two from the Klingel Mansion. Her body had turned skeletal and the remains were best described as partial. Her clothes, her Walkman, and a pair of broken sunglasses were scattered around. Her running shoes were there, and they were untied. And her USC t-shirt, red sports bra, black underwear, and black leggings were all turned inside out, like they'd been you know, pulled off her. And the leggings were tied in knots at each knee. So if she was raped, there was no evidence left of it on her clothes. There was no evidence to work with at all, really. No fingerprints, no blood stains, and almost no DNA survived the year outside. Trace amounts of DNA was found on her leggings, but it wasn't a match to anyone involved in the case, including Gary. To this day, it's never been identified. Her cause of death was hard to figure. Her skull was cracked, but it wasn't clear if that was because of an attack or the elements. There was some damage to the hyoid bone, which could point to strangulation, but they couldn't say for sure. There was no damage to the bones or holes in the clothing consistent with a gun or a knife. And that was the sum total of what they found. Almost. Because two weeks after the police said they were done searching the area with cadaver dogs, metal detectors, everything else, the Levy family's private investigator went to the area with a rake and a shovel to see if there was anything else to find. As it turned out, there was. He found her shin bone with some twisted wire under some leaves only about 25 yards away from the original site of the remains, which 
you know, brings up some questions. Namely, are you absolutely sure you got everything? Well, they didn't. Because when the police went back to check it out, according to the Washington Post, 170 feet in the other direction, they found small bones from her hands and feet, along with her femur, the largest bone in the body. Unfortunately, even with those new discoveries, they still didn't have enough evidence to take anyone to jail, but at least her parents got to take her body home to California. And after that, her case went cold and there was no indication that it would ever be solved until the summer of 2008, when the Washington Post published a 13-part investigation into Chandra's murder, and they interviewed everyone they could get their hands on. Along the way, they found out about Ingmar Guandique, this like non-suspect suspect that had attacked at least three different women in the same area where Chandra was found. It was one of those like, hey, what about this guy? You know, one of those moments. And two months after that report came out, police were knocking on Ingmar's prison bars with more questions. And much to their surprise, they found a picture of Chandra in his cell. He'd cut it out of a magazine and saved it. I mean, it's like, are you trying to get the chair? So that discovery kicked off another deep dive into him, and they came up with something. Another jailhouse informant named Armando Morales. He claimed Ingmar had confessed to him while they were doing time together in 2006. So like, why now, Armando? Why wait two years to say anything? Good questions key questions. And his answer was that he'd found God and he was turning his life around and he thought it was the right thing to do. He was the only direct link between Ingmar and Chandra, except, you know, for that creepy picture of her that he had, which was super weird, but it wasn't enough to pin a murder charge on him. But with this new ear witness and the testimony of the three other women that he attacked in the same area, Yeah, prosecutors thought that they could make it stick, and they put him on trial in October of 2010. On the stand, Armando testified that Ingmar told him, I killed her, but I didn't rape her, and that was enough for the jury. After less than four days of deliberation, they found Ingmar guilty, and he was sentenced to 60 years. Unfortunately, two years later, it came out that Armando, their star witness, might have fudged some details. So Armando Morales was a five-strike felon and the leader of a gang called the Fresno Bulldogs, which honestly, I mean, it doesn't really sound all that scary. Why not the Fresno Butchers or something? Bulldogs. Anyway, despite their name, they were scary. And Armando was doing 20 years for drug and weapons convictions when he met up with Ingmar. But by 2012, he was a free man and staying in the Maryland area. That's when he ran into a woman named Babs Proler, and that chance meeting took the whole case down. Here's what happened. They were staying at the same hotel when one day Babs was on her way out to her car, juggling bags and her dog and, you know, struggling, and he offered a hand. After that, they started taking the dog for walks together, talking and becoming friends, you know, like the Gary Condit version of friends. Yeah, friends. But he was honest with her and he said that he'd just been out of prison. He'd done, you know, he was in a gang, he'd done time, but he was tired of the violence and he wanted a new life and she believed him. But when she left her dog with him while she went out of town, she got a whole new perspective on the situation. 
In an interview with 2020, Bab said that Armando randomly texted her a picture of her business card, which was weird because those cards were kept in a locked file cabinet. So it was obvious that he'd been poking around where he wasn't invited. Now, after that, she started to get a little spooked, but when he started hinting about taking revenge out on some men from her past who, like, may or may not have done her wrong, she decided to secretly start recording their conversations for her own safety, and she ended up with, like, seven hours worth. The reasoning behind the recording for the safety thing is a little fuzzy. I mean, she says that she was afraid for her life, and if he found the recordings, she was sure that he would kill her. But if he killed her, how would anyone hear the recordings, Babs? I don't know. We can't overthink it. So Babs was an aspiring actress with a featured extra credit on House of Cards. And in a plot twist straight out of that show, Armando told her that he was the one who got Chandra Levy's killer put away. He also implied that the prosecutors might have coached him, as in like, they knew he did it, but they just needed someone to say it. But he never straight out said he lied on the stand. At least he didn't say that on those recordings. In fact, according to the Washington Post, the opposite was true. He stood by his testimony more than once during the recording, even saying it was an accident. He didn't know he killed her. He went back. That was his area to steal and rob and whatever he was doing. That was his location and he went back. So any career convict knows that information is power. And when Armando found himself sharing a cell with Ingmar, and then he learned about his connection to and, you know, alleged involvement with Chandra's murder, well, a high-profile case like that was a ticket to a better prison transfer, better conditions, who knows what else. And even if Ingmar did confess to him, Armando glossed over the truth about his own motives for testifying. And it wasn't the first time that he'd snitched. A prosecutor in California had used him as an informant in years past. But when Armando was specifically asked if he'd ever testified against another inmate before, he said no. That was grounds for a new trial because, you know, he'd perjured himself on the stand technically. Now, at the same time, in a parallel world, Babs felt that Chandra's mother needed to know about these recordings since this man might or might not have lied about who killed her daughter. So she reached out to her on Facebook and Chandra's mother redirected her to the lawyers. So what a fudging cluster. Are you picturing this? The lawyers are realizing that they shouldn't have hung their entire case on a career convict. Armando is over here oversharing with Babs. Babs is secretly and like illegally, as it turned out, recording him. And Chandra's parents are like, what fresh hell is this? So here's how it all shook out. And it's pretty grim. First, the lawyers decided that Ingmar needed a new trial. It was tentatively scheduled for the fall of 2016. But when Babs shared her recordings with them, everything fell apart. The sticking point wasn't just the implications that Armando was making about his testimony or the fact that he'd been an informant before. It was more about the other things he was caught on tape saying, like bragging about all the crimes he'd committed and and like those he may yet commit, talking about making shanks out of melted foam cups that could kill a person. The recordings turned his credibility into like, hot garbage, and the prosecution didn't think a jury would buy that he was a changed man testifying to the truth out of the goodness of his heart, so they dropped the charges against Ingmar, which seems like a really big reaction because Ingmar most likely did it. 
Another witness mentioned in the affidavit says he bragged about how he caught his victims, and it's pretty much exactly what those three women experienced, but, you know, worse since they escaped. He would surprise a girl walking or running alone, lasso her around the neck with something, and tie her hands and feet to restrain her using whatever was available, like maybe a pair of leggings. And after he was through with them, he said he didn't always know if they were dead or alive, but that it didn't matter. He just left them tied up to the animals and the elements. And he told someone else that he and two friends killed a girl in the park who looked Italian. He said he choked her to death to stop her screaming, which would make sense with the way and the place she was found within a mile or so of the other women we know he attacked. It also explains why those women managed to escape and Chandra didn't if he had help when he attacked her. So why couldn't they use those other witnesses on the stand instead of Armando? It's very unclear and strange, but they didn't. They opted to drop the charges and they deported Ingmar back to El Salvador. They hustled him onto a plane home in May of 2017. And that was it. Just like that, Chandra's case went from solved back to unsolved. And as the media was chewing on this like latest shocking development in the case, Gary Condit popped back up. He was peddling a book he co-authored about his experience called Actual Malice. So he agreed to go on Dr. Phil in 2016. It was his first interview about, you know, the situation since his disastrous interview with Connie Chung back in August of 2001. On the Dr. Phil show, he claimed he only saw Chandra once at a restaurant and once at his condo, to which Dr. Phil was like, really? Is that what you're going to go with? I'm paraphrasing. So Gary thought about it and said maybe it was twice at his condo, which he made sure to add was not that big of a deal because a lot of people stopped by his condo, which Gary, I think that was kind of the problem. Remember the flight attendant? And how does he explain his DNA on Chandra's underwear and the phone calls? Despite all that, he's always maintained his innocence. He never had sex with that woman, and he's not a suspect in her murder. But nevertheless, his political career was tanked. But his marriage seems to have survived. After everything fell apart in D.C., they moved to Arizona, where he invested in a string of Baskin Robbins. And that's the second time we're hearing about that food chain in this case. Chandra was searching for Baskin Robbins on the day she went missing, which is weird, right? But by 2012, the stores were closed, and according to the Washington Post, he found himself on the hook for about $98,000 to settle some sort of breach of contract suit. And then he moved on to work with an agricultural nonprofit and maybe like dabbled in some real estate. But after the book tour in 2016, he's been pretty quiet. So with Chandra's case still technically unsolved, what do you think about the mysteries within the mystery of what happened to her? Did she cancel her gym membership only to decide to go running in a nearby park the next day, a park she must not have spent a lot of time at before since she had to look up a map for it? Now, her mother seems surprised to hear her daughter was dressed for trail running since she knew Chandra liked to work out in the gym. And if she was out and about, she always carried pepper spray. Did she forget it that day? It wasn't mentioned at the apartment, or was it just not enough to overpower her attacker? But then again, way on the other hand, what about that scream a neighbor heard in her building? Was she killed somewhere else and left in the park 
Because, you know, when you're wearing jogging clothes, sometimes at night when you're at home in your soft clothes. So I don't know. What do you make of this? A lot of questions. I'm Amy, and this was True Crime Recaps. You are the absolute best, so stay safe, stay aware, and Lord knows if Monica and Chandra have taught us anything, it's stay away from married politicians. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, it would mean so much to us if you would subscribe and give this show a five-star review. Thank you so much for spending your time with me today. Until next week, take care.